Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 239, Dr. Bo Branson on the Monarchy of the Father, Part 1. Dr. Bo Branson is a professor of philosophy at Brescia University in Kentucky. He earned his Ph.D. in philosophy from the University of Notre Dame in 2014, and his dissertation was on Gregory of Nyssa on the Trinity. And like me, he specializes in analytic theology. I was delighted earlier this year to find that he had posted online a long presentation with PowerPoint slides expressing his own views on the Trinity and interacting with a lot of my work. Dr. Branson is a convert to Eastern Orthodoxy, and in his view, the Orthodox, or most of them, have the correct way to understand the Trinity. He has a lot of interesting things to say, and I'm going to present my edited version of his long presentation in this and at least the next couple episodes of the Trinity's podcast. I will eventually reply to this discussion, but I'm not in a hurry. I'm going to let him have his entire say first, and I think podcast listeners will appreciate a bit of time to process his interesting and informed perspective on these issues. This episode, to a large extent, concerns definitions, mine versus his. So be on the lookout for a blog post at Trinity's that deals with how to evaluate definitions in general. I'd like to thank Dr. Branson for letting me edit and present this material. So without further ado, Dr. Bo Branson, his presentation entitled, One God, the Father, The Neglected Monarchy of the Father, and the analytic debate about the Trinity. I have given this presentation before at a few conferences, but I had to summarize a whole lot. So this is called, the presentation is just called One God the Father. It's on the neglected doctrine of the monarchy of the Father and how it plays into the analytic debate about the Trinity. So in particular, I'm going to be talking about this doctrine, the monarchy of the Father, that doesn't really show up very often, almost never, in the analytic debate. And I'm going to talk in particular about Dale Tuggy's criticisms of the doctrine of the Trinity, which I think are very problematic, as you'll see. He doesn't seem to be aware of this doctrine and, and its implications. The logical problem of the Trinity is what I'm going to kind of focus on because that's sort of the origin of the criticism of the doctrine of the Trinity. And the doctrine of the Trinity obviously says there's three fully and equally divine persons or individuals. Uh, In the Greek, it's called hypostasis. So that's the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So these are three distinct beings or persons. And all of them share the same divine nature, yet, of course, there's only one God. And so that appears to be contradictory, right? You look at that and you think, well, there's three divine persons, but there's only one God, and that seems like a contradiction. And so there's a number of, I put defenses here in quotes because I have a paper on this called A Historicity in Analytic Theology in the American Catholic Philosophical Quarterly. I explain these are not defenses, but people are confused and they think that what they're doing is offering defenses. And those defenses, quote-unquote, include uh, relative identity Trinitarianism, 
the way that works in a nutshell is it just relies on some very controversial logic and metaphysics about relative identity. It says that essentially there's no such thing as absolute identity. Some versions say that. Some versions admit that there's such a thing as identity, but there's also relative identity. And so you can get this result where, for example, the father can be relatively identical to God, and the son could be relatively identical to God, but the father and the son are not relatively identical to each other. Uh, And that's obviously very controversial. Then there's social Trinitarianism, the other major alternative in the literature, which essentially equivocates on the predicate God or is a God. The reason I say that is because social Trinitarianism claims that the three persons form a kind of society or a group and that the society is actually the one God. But of course, if God were used univocally there, then that would mean you would just end up having four gods rather than one god or three gods, right? Because Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are each god, and then the whole thing is god, so that's actually four gods. So the way that social Trinitarianism really works, a lot of people focus on different things about it like uh, that, that aren't really actually important. So they focus on whether the three persons are persons in the modern sense of the term. They're centers of consciousness and will and all this stuff. But that actually isn't what does the trick. What actually logically does the trick of making the doctrine of the Trinity coherent is equivocating on the term God. So what are the strongest objections to Trinitarianism? Well, what would be obvious from what we've said already, it relies on either wonky metaphysics or some kind of problematic equivocation. Again, it's not not a problem just to equivocate. Equivocations happen all the time. But the question is sort of, is this really biblical? Like, does the Bible contain this kind of equivocation? Does it have two different senses of the term God or something? But more maybe importantly for Tuggy, I think, is that it doesn't do justice to the biblical presentation of God. It's true that he'll kind of dig into the metaphysics and the logic and everything when the, when there's a call for that, right? When there's a need to, to do that and to criticize different attempted uh, defenses of the doctrine of the Trinity. You know, he'll admit that there are some versions of the doctrine of the Trinity or, or some models of the Trinity that kind of work out and are logically consistent. I think what really motivates him more is this issue that it doesn't really do justice to the biblical presentation of God. So in particular, God and the Father name the same person in the New Testament. Uh, that's pretty clear. And I agree with him, as you'll see, I agree with him on that point. Uh, and he's you know, made a lot of presentations and written papers where he discusses this. So God and the Father name the same person, and what follows from that is that God is a single person, right? So God's not a tri-personal being because the Father's not a tri-personal being, right? And God just names the Father. Those, those refer to the same thing. God and the Father are just different uh, terms that refer to the same being. And of course, God is a single person, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. But that's a problem for any view of the Trinity, where part of the view is that the one God is the Trinity, rather than the Father. The most influential alternative to the doctrine of the Trinity in the literature is biblical Unitarianism, because it's defended by Dale Tuggy. He's the author of the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy entry on the Trinity and has done the most uh, really to criticize the doctrine of the Trinity. There's a lot of 
papers in the literature and analytic theology about the Trinity, but of course most people are trying to defend it in some way. He's the only person who really has come out and just said, you know, this is incoherent and we need to abandon it. And so in a way he's kind of running the show as far as alternatives go. And so biblical Unitarianism is the view that he uh, espouses. And that just says, first of all, that God just is the Father, which is what the Bible seems to say. The Son of God, Jesus Christ, is not divine, uh, or at least not in the sense that he has the divine nature, the, the nature of God the Father. And then for most biblical Unitarians anyway, um, I'm not sure exactly what Tuggy's view is on this, but for most biblical Unitarians, talk about the Holy Spirit is going to be something like talk about God in action or something like that. So a lot of biblical Unitarians, there's disagreement among them, but mostly I think they try to kind of massage away the Holy Spirit so it's not a distinct entity. Okay, so pros and cons. Cons, clearly this is not traditional uh, and it's not very popular either. And actually I think Tuggy kind of admits that, and he admits that that's a negative point. Uh, it would be a point in favor of a view, you know, if it had been very popular throughout all of Christian history, and that would say something about it. But on the pro side, I think he would say, look, biblical Unitarianism is straightforward. Um, there's no weird metaphysics. There's no having to equivocate at kind of key points and have this sort of weird thing where there's, you know, one God in one sense, but there's three gods in a different sense, whatever. And so it does justice to the biblical revelation of God as the Father and as unipersonal. The con is real, right? The fact that it's not very popular, not very traditional is real, but I think he would just say it's far outweighed by, uh, by the prose. The way that he draws the picture and draws the landscape of the debate here makes it look like biblical Unitarianism really faces no serious philosophical or exegetical problems, right? So doesn't rely on this weird metaphysics or strange semantics or anything, and it just makes sense out of the Bible in a very straightforward sort of way, and so no problem. Right. But on the other hand, it looks like Trinitarianism faces both, or at least you know one or the other, depending on what kind of Trinitarianism you're talking about. On the other hand, uh, it looks like then Trinitarianism really has nothing but the weight of tradition on its side. The doctrine of the Trinity, the pro for it is that it has tradition and popularity, but the cons are that it's going to have to face these uh, difficult issues. But here's what I think he would say. For one thing, I think for anybody, you would have to admit that making sense out of the Bible and not obviously getting us into any kind of contradiction or very weird metaphysics, that has to outweigh the issue of just tradition and popularity. But I think also he would say, especially for Protestants, right? So Tuggy is a Protestant, uh, and I think, in a way, a lot of times his audience uh, is largely Protestant. I think he's directing his arguments a lot of times at Protestants anyway. I think what he would say is, especially for Protestants, look, you're rejecting a lot of the Catholic tradition anyway, right, just by being a Protestant. So isn't this just one more case of this non-biblical tradition that we really ought to reject? For example, you know, if you're a Protestant, you're going to reject 
certain books out of the Bible, right, that the Catholic Church traditionally says are deuterocanonical. You know, you're going to be rejecting things like whether the Eucharist is the body and blood of Christ, right? You're going to be rejecting the idea that you need ordination from bishops or the whole sacramental system. I mean, there's all sorts of things that you're kind of rejecting anyway that basically have the weight of tradition behind them, but don't seem on the Protestant view to accord with reason or with scripture. And so doesn't this look like just one more? And that, I think, is something, uh, again, I don't know if he really gets enough credit for. I think it's a good argument. I think it's a, it's a good point. I, of course, am not a Protestant, so I don't know, it doesn't really affect me too much. Uh, I think it's a good point that, you know, if you're a Protestant anyway, it looks like just one more thing you should jettison. I guess I would argue if you're a Protestant, you should just jettison your belief in God in the first place, and the Bible too, but that's a, that's a whole other presentation I'd have to give. But even if you're not a Protestant, I think he'd say this, look, you know, is the mere weight of tradition enough to outweigh these other issues? So even if you're Catholic, if you're Orthodox, really high church Anglican or whatever, if all the doctrine of the Trinity has going for it is just the weight of tradition or popularity, I mean, that's a pretty, uh, that's a pretty sad commentary on the, on the doctrine, right? That's really not enough reason to keep it around if it looks like it conflicts with reason, and especially if it looks like it conflicts with the Bible itself. So it looks like biblical Unitarianism has the upper hand against Trinitarianism. That is what I think is the picture of the, the landscape, of the debate, right, the dialectical sort of situation that Tuggy wants us to buy into, right? He wants us, I think, to see the landscape in that way, that that's the situation these views are in. So I want to explain kind of my goals for this talk and what are not the goals for this talk. So first of all, I hope to explain something about the doctrine of the monarchy of the Father, but I'm not going to try to convince you that it's true. It will become obvious to you that I believe that it's true, uh, and I think that this is the right way to go, but if you're a Protestant, if you're a Roman Catholic, uh, whatever, you know, you might listen to this and think, well, I don't know, you know, I think this is subordinationist, or I think it's got, you know, some kind of problem with it, or whatever. That's fine. That's not really my point right here, right now. Okay, my point right here, right now, is to explain it. Uh, it's not to convince you it's true, or even that it's a good idea. I'm not going to try to say it's kind of, you know, if you're going to be a Trinitarian, it's the best way to do things. Uh, but what I do hope to show is that when we put some neglected history back into view, what seems like the strongest objections to Trinitarianism lose their force entirely. My big project is sort of to try to get analytic theologians to pay more attention to history, basically. So I'm someone who works in analytic philosophy. That's what my PhD is in. But I've done some work in patristics. My dissertation was on Gregory of Nyssa and his views on the Trinity. Uh, and so I want to say that historical theologians and patristics scholars can be helped out a lot in trying to understand the Church Fathers if they involve some of the tools of analytic theology and analytic philosophy. I think it can help illuminate the Church Fathers. And I also think that uh, analytic theologians need to be paying more attention to the Church Fathers. So I just want to show how, you know, once we get clear on the history of the doctrine of the Trinity, 
this landscape, this picture that Tuggy is presenting us with is going to change entirely. And it'll be almost opposite to how he wants us to view things. When the Trinity's podcast returns, Dr. Branson contrasts my definitions with his. I'm going to focus on two sets of definitions that we might use for Trinitarianism and Unitarianism. Obviously, my own are going to be one, and then Tuggy's are going to be the others that I'll talk about. And they might seem similar at first. Okay, You might look at them at first and say, oh, well, these uh, just look like two slightly different ways of saying the same thing. But the doctrine of the monarchy is going to show how they come apart. So you're going to probably, if you're like most people I've given this presentation to, you're going to look at these definitions at first and think, yeah, you know, they're kind of worded differently, but they're probably basically pretty much the same. But then I'm going to talk to you about the doctrine of the monarchy, and you're going to see these are actually radically, radically different. So I'm going to say a Trinitarian theology is any one that says there are exactly three divine persons or individuals, but nevertheless, there's exactly one God. Okay, so in my view, if you have three divine persons or three divine individuals, but only one God, that's Trinitarian. So, of course, it's going to follow that the persons can't all just be identical to the one God. That's what gives you the logical problem of the Trinity, or at least that's one way of getting into the logical problem of the Trinity, is uh, if you've got these three persons and then the one God, well, if the three persons are all identical to the one God, then they'd be identical to each other, and so there's not really three of them anymore. So that's where you would get the contradiction. So you can't say that they're all identical to the one God. Now, presumably, whatever your Trinitarian theology is exactly, all of the three persons are going to bear some kind of important relation to the one God, uh, or they're going to have some kind of claim to being called God. You know, if you're a social Trinitarian, that's going to be cashed out in terms of the three persons being parts of the one God or something like that. Uh, the one God containing the three persons or consisting of the three persons. If you're a relative identity Trinitarian, it's going to be something about the three persons all having some relative identity relation to the one God, but not to each other. But because there's a whole you know range of views that could uh, you, you could work out here, I'm not going to settle that issue just in my definitions. I'm just going to kind of leave it open. Now, that means that there there is a problem, and I'll admit this up front. There's a problem with my definitions, which is that, you know, we probably should say something more about the relations here. And that's because, as my definitions are stated, you know, you could, in theory, have three divine persons over here, and then there's the one God over there, and that's just this fourth entity, and they have nothing to do with each other. And of course, that wouldn't really be Trinitarian. So we should say something, we should change the definition. I want to be clear about that. My definitions have some flaws in them, but I'm going to argue that they're, they're better than Tuggies. On the other hand, a Unitarian theology says 
there's exactly one divine person or individual, and there's exactly one God. Okay, so here again, presumably that means that they'll just be identical, or at least numerically one, or something like that. But again, I'm not going to try to rule on that point just in the definition. So, like I say, you know, we we would like to know maybe more about you know what does the relation have to be between the divine person or persons and the one God. That's something that should be changed, and that we we need to kind of do something to to uh, beef up these definitions or clarify the definitions in some way. But for now, uh, I'm going to say that's that's good enough because you're going to see why this comes apart from Tuggy's definitions, which is what I really want uh, to focus on. Okay, so here's Tuggy's definitions, and this is from a paper that he wrote called Tertullian the Unitarian. So he defines Trinitarian Christian theology as saying there's one God— which or who in some sense contains or consists of three persons, namely the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. A little more specific than me. By the way, I should mention here, he's defined Christian Trinitarian theology. Mine is just Trinitarian theology in general. So obviously my definitions would apply even, you know, maybe to Hinduism or something if it turned out that Hindus had a Trinitarian theology. Unitarian theology, you know, that would apply to Judaism, to Islam. It could apply to, you know, any other kind of religion. It could be some sort of Native American religion or, uh, you know, an indigenous African religion or something. It could be anything. I would just say if you want to talk about Christian Trinitarian theology, just take a Trinitarian theology and then whatever the definition of Christian theology is, just add those two together, right? And then, right? Take take the intersection of those sets, and that's that's what you get. So I don't see there's any reason to really build into uh, your definition of Trinitarian and Unitarian that it has to be Christian. But anyway, that's a separate issue. Tuggy tries to kind of build this into his definitions. So he says there's one God, and he in some sense contains or consists of these three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who are all equally divine, and one through three are eternally the case, right? So it's eternally true that there's one God, eternally true that he contains the persons and that they're equally divine. A Unitarian Christian theology says there's one God who he says is numerically identical to the one Jesus called the Father and is not numerically identical to anyone else, okay? I don't know how you can be numerically identical to anyone else uh, than yourself, but anyway, I guess that must be in there to get around some kind of issues with relative identity or something like this. But anyway, he adds then again that one through three are eternally the case. So you've got, for Unitarian theology on, on Tuggy's definition, you've got one God is numerically identical to the Father and not numerically identical to anyone else, and those are all eternally true. So again, you might think, look, Given some reasonable assumptions, these are just going to turn out to be equivalent. But I'm going to argue absolutely not. So again, it might look that way at first, but these definitions are starkly, starkly different. And when we consider things historically, again, when we look at things from the point of view of history, it's going to make that crystal clear. So again, my definitions could be improved. I want to be clear about that. I don't think they're you know perfect definitions. They could be improved, but I think Tuggies, I will show, are just inadequate. They are just irremediably flawed. So when we look again at at the debate through a more historical lens, arguments in favor of biblical Unitarianism are going to lose their force. 
uh, and biblical Unitarianism is going to end up in this tight spot. Specifically, I'll say this now, it faces a trilemma that's going to result in either one collapsing into a form of Trinitarianism, after all, or just losing its dialectical advantage uh, against all or most models of the Trinity. The other option would be just to deny the identity of the Father uh, with God, uh, which is not what biblical Unitarians want to do. When the Trinity's podcast returns, Dr. Branson explains what he calls the doctrine of the monarchy of the Father. Okay, so what is this monarchy of the father doctrine I keep talking about? Well, monarchia in Greek just comes, of course, from the words monos and archi. And archi can mean rule. Uh, It can mean power or authority. So that's where we get our term monarchy, which means rule by one. But it can also mean the source or the principle. Uh, And so you have to keep these in mind because sometimes the church fathers kind of use it in one sense, or sometimes they use it in another sense. The point is that monarchy can mean not only a single rule or a single power, but it can also mean a single first principle of being. Archi, like in the Bible, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, that's archi. In Greek philosophy, in ancient Greek philosophy, when philosophers would talk about how many arche are there, how many sources are there? They're, they're talking about what are the ultimate principles of existence. So in this sense, monarchia means that there's only one first principle. Okay, So that's what the, the idea of monarchia is. So when we talk about the monarchy or the monarchia of the Father, right? the idea is that the Father is the one source or the first principle of everything. And what's important here is that that's not just with reference to creation, but that's talking about within the Trinity itself. So the idea, uh, this idea is shared by literally all of the Orthodox Church Fathers, and that's pretty much uncontroversial within patristic scholarship. There's no Church Father, no one who's considered an Orthodox Father of the Church, who has ever denied the monarchy of the Father. It's a critical part of the doctrine of the Trinity and of the of the kind of classical view of the Trinity. There's a little more debate on the question of what various church fathers think about the one rule or authority uh, in the Trinity. So again, there's this distinction between archi in the sense of rule versus the sense of being the source of everything. All the church fathers say that God the Father is the one source, the single source, not only of creation, but of the rest of the Trinity, of the Son and the Holy Spirit. So even though the Son and the Holy Spirit are divine and uncreated, they are not 
what we would call ase in uh, in technical sort of theological terminology. Um, they don't exist ase. They owe their existence to the Father. So he is the monarchia. There's more debate about what they think about the rule or the authority in the Trinity. I don't feel like it's that unclear. I think that these debates are often motivated by pre-existing theological concerns. So in particular, there's a whole debate that's been raging for a few decades now uh, among a certain evangelical Protestant. Actually, I don't know if they're all evangelical Protestants. Some of them are, I think, Anglicans in Sydney, Australia or something. But anyway, I don't really get into that whole business. But, But there's this whole debate that's going on there. And a lot of it's kind of a proxy. It's a weird sort of proxy for debates about gender roles. Uh, I, apparently because of the verse that says, you know, the head of a woman is man and the head of man is Christ and the head of Christ is God. And so uh, there's this kind of debate about the rule or authority and, and whether it belongs to the father and there's a kind of subordination of the son to the father which they want to then translate onto the relation between men and women versus these egalitarians who want to say, well, no, it, the, the authority is shared um, among the persons of the Trinity, and so that means we can have gender equality too, which I think is kind of a weird thing to even think that Trinitarian theology is going to play directly into gender roles and things. But anyway, that's that's a whole issue. And so I, I think that a lot of times it's these, again, pre-existing theological, or in this case, even sort of political and social uh, commitments that people bring to the text. My view on that is the rule or the authority originates with the Father, but the Father shares that with the Son and the Spirit. So in the same way that really you just posit the existence of the Father, the Father exists, ah, say, just from himself. He's not brought into being by anything else. He just exists on his own. But he is the cause of timelessly the cause of the Son and the Holy Spirit's existence. And likewise, he's the cause of the fact that they have the divine nature. So he has the divine nature within himself. The Greek term is autotheos. So just like the word automobile is self-movable, autotheos or autotheos means that God the Father is God of himself. He has the divine nature just in and of himself. The Son and the Holy Spirit in Orthodox theology and in patristic theology really generally, the Son and the Holy Spirit are not out of theos, but they are uh, in the creed and elsewhere called God of God. So we say, I believe in one Son, uh, one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, light of light, true God of true God. Whereas the Father is not God of God, he's just out of theos, right? He's just God by himself. And I think that's the same uh, for the archi in the sense of rule or power or authority. The power begins in the Father originally, and then it is shared with the Son and the Holy Spirit. So, I don't know. I mean, is that subordinationism? Is that egalitarianism? I don't know. I I mean, and I'm not really involved in these political debates, so it doesn't really matter to me too much. But anyway, that's, that's, I think, how it works. To get back on the on the main track, we can kind of make the doctrine of the monarchy, the, which is the father being the single source, a little more precise in a, in a number of ways. 
First of all, there's just a kind of uncontroversial reading of the monarchy of the father, which is, again, just that the father is the sole source, the sole cause of the son and the spirit, whereas he is uncaused. And that is pretty much uncontroversial. So we'll talk about this later on. There's some questions about the filioque uh, in the West. People like to say that the son is from the father and then the Holy Spirit is from both the father and the son. And we're going to talk about why Orthodox Christians reject that because it seems to impair the monarchy of the father. It seems, on the face of it anyway, looks like the son has become another first principle. And so we reject that. But it turns out, really, that the Western understanding is a little bit more nuanced. But bracketing the issue with the filioque, this is pretty uncontroversial. Everyone sort of thinks that the Father is, at least at least in the creeds and their official theology, they they have to kind of say this because it's, it's there in all the Church Fathers, and it's there in the creed, and it's there in the Bible. A more interesting kind of interpretation of the Father as the source— is that maybe he's also the source of the divine nature itself. Um, This is something John Zizulas, who I'll mention later, talks about a lot. And that's a little bit stranger and a little bit more interesting, um, that the Father both begets the Son and generates the Holy Spirit, but also not through, you know, begetting or proceeding or causing in some way, but also in some sense he's kind of the ground of the divine nature itself. Another way of thinking about the monarchy, even slightly stronger and maybe more interesting, is that the father, in some sense, he is the union, or he is the unity of the Trinity, or he's the principle of unity within the Trinity, not, say, the divine nature or the community of persons. So probably, at a minimum, this is what the Greek fathers mean when they talk about the monarchy of the father. And as we'll see, you know, Gregory Nazianzen and other people literally use this language. They say the Father is the union, or the Father is the unity of the Trinity. And this probably means something like, you know, the end of explanation. He's kind of the ultimate explanation for the oneness of God. Think about it in this sense. Think about this kind of analogy. If you're a social Trinitarian and you say, well, the one God is this society, then if you are explaining the unity of God— the unity of God or the oneness of God is ultimately, for you, going to bottom out in a reference to the divine society or community, because that's what makes it the case that there's only one God. If you're a relative identity Trinitarian, I guess that what's going to make it the case that there's only one God is something about relative identity relations. But anyway, the Orthodox Fathers, anyway, don't say that the the explanation for the unity or the oneness of God is the community. They certainly don't say it's relative identity relations, and they don't say it's the divine nature, which is really kind of what Western theology starts to get itself into during the Middle Ages. They say it's the Father. So it would be interesting, I think, to explore that in a little more detail, but I'm not going to because, for one, we don't have time, but also because the last kind of understanding that I'm going to talk about would seem to entail that, and that is that, strictly speaking, the Father just is the one God. So that would be a very strong interpretation of the monarchy of the Father, that, strictly speaking, the one God just is the Father. They're numerically identical. It's just two you know, different ways of referring to the same being, the same person. 
So this view would say, you know, the Son and the, sh- the Spirit can share the same nature as the one God, the Father, but they're not identical to him. That certainly would entail that the end of explanation for the unity of God is the Father. And so what I'm going to do is just focus on this last and strongest interpretation. I'll say a little bit about why might you interpret things in, in that way. Why would you interpret talk in the church fathers about the monarchy of the father as meaning that there's just one God and it's the father. When the Trinity's podcast returns, more of Dr. Branson's ideas about monotheism and the proper understanding of Trinitarian Christian theology. Okay, so here's a quote from Prestige, and I agree with him here. He says these two uh, views, emanationism and Sabellianism, uh, he says Sabellianism is just another word for modalism. He says they're described in modern books as the monarchian heresies, monarchy in patristic language being roughly equivalent to monotheism. He's very much right about that. It's strange because there could be a word in Greek for monotheism, um, but you don't really ever see it. What you see is the the word monarchia. And so he says that's roughly kind of their term for monotheism, just as the word monarchy. So he says the description answers well enough so long as nobody is led to imagine that there's anything heretical about acceptance of the word monarchy. There's not. It's a perfectly good orthodox term, which the fathers use as freely as the heretics to express their sense of the sole ultimate authority of one God to the exclusion of all others. So in other words, again, in a lot of theology textbooks, people will refer to modalism and emanationism as monarchian. But prestige here is just saying, that's fine, but don't let it fool you, because talking about the monarchy is fine. The church fathers themselves use the term monarchia to express monotheism. Right? It's just that these emanationism and Sabellianism have a heretical understanding of what the monarchy is. They think that the monarchy, or in other words, monotheism, entails that there can only be one divine person, one divine entity. So for modalism, of course, the idea is that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all identical. That's how they get the monarchy. Now, the Church Fathers still use the term monarchy, and they believe in the monarchy. They just work it out in a different way from uh, modalists and others. So the moral of the story here is that if you want to look for discussions of monotheism in the Father, you're not going to find anything under that term. So if you just go in and in Greek, you know, try to figure out some word for monotheism and search for that, you're not going to find anything in the church fathers. You're not going to find a term like monotheism. What you have to look for is the word monarchia, right? And if you search for monarchia, you'll find them talking about that all the time, and they're talking about it as their term for monotheism. But here's the issue. When the church fathers talk about the monarchia, in all but a few hotly contested passages, they talk about the monarchia of the father. 
Okay, so when the Orthodox Fathers talk about their word for monotheism, monarchia, they say the monarchy of the Father. So another way we might talk about the monarchia of the Father would be as the monotheism of the Father, the one godness of the Father. And as anyone very familiar with Trinitarian theology knows, this is a, if not the, standard traditional view among Eastern Orthodox theologians, and it's grounded in the texts of the Church Fathers. And as we're going to talk about all of this, it was the root cause of the Great Schism, too, right? So this idea that the one God is the Father, we are monotheists because the Father is the monarchia, right? That's the one God. That's the, that is just the standard traditional sort of view in Eastern Orthodox theology. And we're going to see, we're going to go through all of this and see that that's the case and that that's in the Church Fathers and where we're going to look at some of the texts anyway. We can't go through all of them because there's millions of them, but um, we're going to see why that's what they get out of the Church Fathers. And we're also going to see that's the root cause of the, of the Great Schism. Okay, so a few quick definitions here. I'm just going to use here on out the phrase, the strong monarchy view for the proposition that the one God just equals the Father. You know, there are weaker views of the monarchy. You could understand the monarchy of the Father just as being the fact that the Father is the source of the Son and the Holy Spirit. You might try to do that, but still say that the one God is the Trinity itself or whatever. You, you might interpret the monarchy in these weaker ways, so I'm going to call it the strong monarchy view when we say that the one God just is the Father. And I'm going to call a monarchical model of the Trinity any model of the Trinity with a strong monarchy view. So any model of the Trinity that says the one God is just the Father, we'll call that a monarchical model. On the other hand, an egalitarian or symmetrical model is what I will call any model in which the persons have an equal claim to being called God in any sense, right? So uh, in any sense of the term theos or otheos or God or the one God, uh, if all of the persons kind of equally can claim that title, then I'll say that that's a symmetrical model or an egalitarian model. On that sort of view, on a symmetrical model, any quality or any relation that would be relevant to whether the person can be called God in any sense is going to be shared by the other two persons equally. So there's going to be no inequality of any sort. Um, so monarchical models are all non-symmetrical by definition, but there could be non-symmetrical models um, that are not monarchical. Those would just be kind of anomalous. So for example, you could have a non-symmetrical view where only the Holy Spirit is the one God or something. And that would be um, neither monarchical in my sense nor nor egalitarian, but those are kind of deviant, uh, weird views, so they won't uh, have to hold us back too much. And then I'm going to use the term monarchical trinitarianism, or just abbreviated MT, as an umbrella sort of term for all monarchical models, right? So, and similarly, egalitarian trinitarianism will just encompass all the egalitarian or symmetrical views. Now we can see that our definitions, Tuggy's definitions and my definitions, are not equivalent. And one way, just a very sort of simple, uh, maybe overly simplistic, but a, um, I think a helpful way to think about this is in social Trinitarianism, the one God is all of the divine persons, right? So all of them taken together as this big community count as the one God. 
In relative identity Trinitarianism, the one God is each of the divine persons, right? So each one individually is the one God because they're relatively identical to the one God. In monarchical Trinitarianism, there are exactly three divine persons and there's exactly one God because the one God is just one of the divine persons, right? So again, in social Trinitarianism, the one God is all the divine persons. In relative identity Trinitarianism, the one God is each of the divine persons. And in monarchical Trinitarianism, the one God is just one of the divine persons, right? So that's the difference. Here's the issue. Monarchical models will count as Trinitarian on my definitions. They will not count as Unitarian, according to my definitions, because the number of divine persons is three and not one. And I will, if you're scratching your head and you're confused, how does this work? I don't understand. I'll explain later on a little bit more about how monarchical Trinitarianism works. But for now, just think about what it counts as. Would it count as a Trinitarian view or a Unitarian view? Well, according to my definitions, monarchical Trinitarianism is Trinitarian because there's three divine persons, but only one God. The one God is one of the three divine persons. And it's not Unitarian because there's not just one God, right? But on Tuggy's definition, monarchical Trinitarianism would count as Unitarian. And that's just because the relation between the one God and the Father is identity. So even though there are three fully and equally divine persons, they all share the same divine nature, they're all equally uncreated, they all have the same power, they're omniscient, omnipotent, omnibenevolent, and all this stuff, even though there's three divine persons, he's going to call that Unitarian. Not because there's one divine person, right? But because the relation between the one God and one of the divine persons is, is identity. Now, here's an interesting question. I mean, that already, to me, I would say, seems paradoxical. But an interesting question is, do some monarchical models also count as Trinitarian? So are there monarchical models of the Trinity that would count as both Unitarian and Trinitarian on Tuggy's definitions. And I guess, spoiler alert, yes, <laughs> there will be. We'll come back to that later when we talk about mainstream analytic models of the Trinity and ways in which Tuggy's definitions uh, kind of fall apart. Okay, so two sort of million-dollar questions uh, about monarchical Trinitarianism. First of all, a lot of you might be thinking, especially if you're a Western Christian, if you grew up like I did in kind of a, an environment where you think of the Trinity as very much egalitarian, you might say, well, this isn't really Trinitarian, it's subordinationism. So we'll talk a little bit about that. And another question that one might have, especially if you're into analytic philosophy, as uh, Tuggy and I both are, wouldn't this rule out almost every analytic model of the Trinity, uh, which they're, they're all symmetrical, right? So all the versions of social Trinitarianism and relative identity Trinitarianism that have been proposed are all symmetrical. So wouldn't um, monarchical Trinitarianism just have to come in and say, well, none of these models work, right? It's inconsistent with all of them. And we'll address that later on a little bit too. So there's no way really to fully do justice to the first question in a short period of time. 
But I'm going to give you, I think, some pretty good reason to say that in any sense that's actually important to real Trinitarians, yes, monarchical Trinitarianism is Trinitarian, in any sense that would matter to an actual Trinitarian. And then I'm going to explain a little bit how a strong monarchy view actually is consistent with not all analytic models of the Trinity, but with a much wider range of them than, than you might expect. The way I'm going to attack this is I'm going to kind of work my way backwards through history. So I'll start with modern Eastern Orthodox theologians talking about the monarchy of the Father. And then I'm going to talk about how that plays out in current sort of ecumenical discussions between the Roman Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church. And then I'm going to work my way backwards to the Great Schism and talk about how the monarchy of the Father played out in the Great Schism. And then I'm going to go back in time to the Church Fathers and to the actual 4th century Trinitarian controversy itself uh, and show you some of the patristic texts where people get this out of. Again, there's no way to really go through all of it because it would just it would take a year to go through all of it. Um, but I'm going to kind of work my way backwards in time and give you the history of it. And I think that should show that in any really important sense, monarchical Trinitarianism is indeed Trinitarianism. And then I'll kind of circle back and come back to the logic of it and talk about the relation between monarchical Trinitarianism and analytic philosophy. When the Trinity's podcast returns, Dr. Branson appeals to the work of some present-day leading Eastern Orthodox theologians. introductory setting out of the argument, basically. I'm going to go through in this part and sort of substantiate some of the stuff that I've been saying. I said, first of all, that this view that the one God is just the Father, this very strong interpretation of the monarchy, I said that's just kind of standard Orthodox theology. That's a mainstream view. And you might think, oh, that's crazy. I've never heard that. So I'm just going to go through some various big-name scholars, and kind of point this out. Probably the person that's most famous or infamous, maybe, depending on your view, for promoting this this kind of strong view of the monarchy of the Father is John Zizulos, the Metropolitan of Pergamum. Here's a quote from his book, Being as Communion. He says, Among the Greek fathers, the unity of God, the one God— and the ontological principle or cause of the being and life of God does not consist in the one substance of God, but in the hypostasis, that is, the person of the Father. The one God is not the one substance, the usia, but the Father. The one God is the Father. That's in his book, Being as Communion. By the way, it's very puzzling because I know that Tuggy 
references this book here and there in some different uh, places. I don't know, maybe you haven't read the whole thing or or just, I don't know if you could read it and just sort of not catch this or, or what, but it's very puzzling and it's the source of a lot of, I think, confusion and, and um, maybe irritation by a lot of people who are orthodox. And I've talked to some people who just kind of say, you know, look, this guy just doesn't know what he's talking about. You know, he's just ignorant of orthodox theology, he's ignorant about the church fathers, doesn't, you know, just doesn't know the, the texts, et cetera, et cetera. And other people have said, oh, you know, he must know. I mean, he, you know, he references these things. He knows he's just, he's just deliberately lying and, you know, covering. And I don't know. I think that's an uncharitable way uh, of reading him. But I do think it's puzzling. And I, I wish that he would kind of clarify for us, you know, what sort of what the deal is. I think there's a lot of people that wonder, has he just not done his homework? Has he just not read these texts? Because um, this is a very important and influential book in Trinitarian theology uh, among theologians. You know, is he deliberately hiding things? Uh, I, I don't think I want to think that about him, but I do wish that he would come out and kind of clarify what's going on. But anyway, another, uh, Zizilas says this all the time, and he's, like I said, famous or infamous for it. The one God is the Father. Substance is something common to all three persons of the Trinity, but it is not ontologically primary until Augustine makes it so. So that's in this book that was edited by Colin Gunton on, on being persons towards an ontology of personhood is the name of the paper, and that's in this book, Persons, Divine and Human. Father John Baer is maybe less infamous, but no less adamant about this. He's the dean of St. Vladimir's Seminary. St. Vladimir's Seminary, certainly in the United States, uh, and I guess in North America, well, probably in either North or South America, is certainly the, the most academically, it's, it's the most important Orthodox seminary. Uh, there's a handful of others, but I think anyone would agree that St. Vladimir's does the most in terms of academic work. He says this all the time. I think he takes a lot of delight in um, just sort of bashing other theologians for getting this wrong. So he, he says here, this is his paper, Calling Upon God as Father, Augustine and the Legacy of Nicaea, in this book on Orthodox readings of Augustine. In that paper, by the way, I mean, he, uh, you know, he, he really kind of gives it to Augustine for being the one to change this. And, and Augustine is the first church father to say that the one God is the Trinity. I'm not sure if Tuggy knows that or not or, or what, but anyway, Augustine, no one before Augustine uh, ever said that. And after Augustine, as we'll see, nobody in the East ever <laughs> says it anyway. But anyway, John Baer in this paper says, The one God confessed by Christians in the first article of the creeds of Nicaea and Constantinople is unambiguously the Father. This is a, an interview in, in a magazine called The Living Pulpit. Uh, this is not a scholarly publication, but it's just kind of a talk that he gave. So he says, uh, How can the Christians believe in and worship the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and yet claim that there is only one God, not three? How can one reconcile monotheism with Trinitarian faith? He says, because the Father alone is the one true God, <laughs> right? So monarchical Trinitarianism, the one God is one of the divine persons. That's how you, you uh, reconcile this, this issue. It's not really an issue, right? There's one God because the Father alone is the one true God. He says, this keeps to the structure of the New Testament language about God where with only a few exceptions, the word God, theos, with an article, 
and so being used in Greek as a proper noun, is only applied to the one whom Jesus calls Father. It's funny, as notice that's exactly you know, the same kind of language that Tagi uses. The God spoken of in the scriptures, he says, the same fact is preserved in all ancient creeds which begin, I believe in one God, the Father. Such then is how the Greek fathers following scripture maintained that there is but one God, whose Son and Spirit are equally God, in a unity of essence and of existence, without compromising the uniqueness of the one true God. Bear is right that that's how it works in the scripture, and he's also right that's how it works in the Greek fathers, too. Here's just another uh, quote from Bear from the book, The Nicene Faith. He says, For the Christian faith, there is unequivocally but one God, and that is the Father. There is one God and Father. For Basil, the one God is not the one divine substance or a notion of divinity which is ascribed to each person of the Trinity, nor is it some kind of unity or communion in which they all exist, right? So it's not relative identity, it's not social Trinitarianism. The one God is the Father. This monarchy of the Father does not undermine the confession of the true divinity of the Son and the Spirit. Jesus Christ is certainly true God of true God, as the Nicene Creed puts it, but he is such as the Son of God, the God who is thus the Father. Right? If the term God is used, or theos, is used of Jesus Christ not only as a predicate, but also as a proper noun with an article, this is only done on the prior confession of him as Son of God, and so as other than the one God of whom he is the Son. Uh, it's necessary to bear in mind this order of Christian theology, lest it collapse in confusion. That's Bear's view, right? It's very clear that unequivocally one God, and that's the Father, the one God is the Father, etc., etc., so let's move on to the former dean of St. Vladimir's Seminary, Thomas Hopko. Here's a couple quotes from him from this podcast. He says, now in the Bible, in the creeds and in the liturgy, it's very important, really critically important to note and to affirm and to remember that the one God in whom we believe, strictly speaking, is not the Holy Trinity. The one God is God the Father. That in the Bible, the one God is the Father of Jesus Christ. He is God who sends his only begotten Son into the world, and Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And then, of course, in parallel manner, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is the Spirit of God. He goes on and says, on the other hand, there's another terrible error, and the other terrible error, usually called modalism in technical theological terminology, is where people say there is one God who is the Holy Trinity. There is he who is the Trinity. We Orthodox Christians following scripture and the creedal statements and the liturgical prayers can never say that there is one God who is the Trinity. There is one God who is the Father. And this one God who is the Father has with him eternally, whom he begets timelessly before all ages, his only begotten Son, who is also his Logos, his Word, and also his Chokhmah, his Sophia, his Wisdom, also his ikona, his icon, his image. Uh, but this wisdom and word and image and icon is divine with the same divinity as God, the one true and living God. So again, Father Hopko was very clear on this too, that the one God is the Father. So that's two deans of, of St. Vladimir's Seminary in a row. And then I've got this quote from Father John Meyendorf, who was the dean of St. Vladimir's Seminary uh, before that. 
it's not as clear in this passage, I guess, that he is affirming it himself, but he's obviously attributing it to the Cappadocians and so forth. And it's implicitly, it seems pretty clear that he endorses it. He says the same personalistic emphasis appears in the Greek father's insistence on the monarchy of the father. Contrary to the concept which prevailed in the post-Augustinian West and in Latin scholasticism, Greek theology attributes the origin of hypostatic subsistence to the hypostasis of the father, not to the common essence. The father is the cause, the idea, and the principle, the archi, of the divine nature. Uh, so again, that's that view where the father is the principle of not just the son and the spirit, but of the divine nature itself, which is in the son and the, and the spirit. What is even more striking is the fact that this monarchy of the father is constantly used by the Cappadocian fathers against those who accuse them of tritheism. God is one, writes Basil, because the father is one. Again, the, the word monarchy is the word for monotheism among the fathers. So when people call them tritheists, they say, no, we're not tritheists because the monarchy of the father, the monotheism of the father, in other words. So again, Basil says there's one God because there's one father. I'm going to give credit here to David Waltz at uh, Articula, Articuli Fidei for this reference. I'm not really that familiar with Boris uh, Bobrinskoy. But um, anyway, D David's um, website is fantastic. Again, if you're interested in these issues, if you're interested in the doctrine of the Trinity, and if you're interested in the doctrine of the monarchy of the Father, his website is just a gold mine uh, for discussions of the monarchy of the Father, and in particular, discussions, uh, you know, locating it in the texts of the Church Fathers and you know, debating certain passages where people say, you know, maybe it is, maybe it isn't there, whatever. Anyway, it's a great website. I gave you the link there, articulifidei.blogspot.com. So here's just one quote from, uh, again, from Bobrinskoy. He says, uh, The Father is not only uncaused and ungenerated, but he is the cause, the principle, or he, not only of the being of creatures, but also of the Trinitarian hypostases of the Son and the Spirit. Okay, so again, uh, he's pointing out that the Father is the, the one source, and he says, Thus, the oneness of God is placed not on the level of the nature common to the three, but on the basis of the personal relation or origin from the Father. That's, a, I think, a pretty good selection of, of modern Orthodox scholars, and you can see that some of the most important Orthodox scholars that there are, I would say John Baer is for my money, one of the most important writing today. John Zizulos, certainly uh, everyone who deals in systematic theology and Trinitarian theology always has to deal with Zizulos. And all of these guys affirm not just the monarchy of the Father, not just the Father's the source of the Son and the Spirit, but the strong monarchy view, right? A very strong monarchy view that the one God just is identical to the Father. This week's thinking music has been the track Thy Resurrection from an album called Chants of the Russian Orthodox Church, Volume 2. Next week, more from Dr. Branson about the monarchy of the Father.
Thanks for listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.